At this time, I'm going to ask Mark to come on up. Um, some of you may remember Mark. He and his wife, Jalissa, went here to Orchard and were members uh, up to, we were trying to figure out when, I don't know, four, five, six years ago or so. Somewhere between three and ten years ago. Uh, and we first met Jalissa, his, his, well, at that time, his fiance. She came and attended Orchard while she was going to RIT as a student. And uh, we got to know her, I think, almost a year. And we heard rumors about this guy that she was going to marry. And we got to know her and thought, man, I, I sure hope that, you know, he's a good and godly man and, and a good match for her. And sure enough, when we met Mark, we were just thrilled for the both of them. They got married and then started attending here together. And at some point, I don't know how it came up, but we started talking about Mark teaching Sunday school. Mark was a young guy at that time. I think you were 19. Yeah, I got married at 19. Yeah. So he was a young guy. We thought, hey, let's let's see. And, and I don't want to embarrass you, but if you know Mark, Mark's a pretty quiet guy. And so the thought of putting him in front of a class and having him teach a class, we thought, let's see how he does. And, and God just used you in awesome ways. And you just really showed a gift for teaching. So he did that for about, I don't know, six, eight months, maybe a year. And then somehow it came up, hey, how would you like to maybe preach some Sunday morning? And so uh, we started working together, and I sat right right there where Dan is and had a video camera, and Mark preached a sermon to me, I think about six times over the course of a couple weeks, and we worked through it, and then he got up and he did it on a Sunday morning and just did awesome. After that, he preached, I don't know, two, three, four more times here at Orchard, and you've been preaching and teaching at other churches since then, mm-hmm. and uh, they've since moved to Cortland. And uh, we've been praying for them. Anyways, just so happy that Mark could come here. Disappointed that Jalissa couldn't and the kids. That's too bad. But maybe they'll be able to see it online. Uh, So, Mark, thank you so much for coming and opening God's word to us. Yeah, actually, to uh, to add to that just a little bit, um, I wanted to say that I I owe this church uh, an immeasurable debt because this is where, after I got married, where a lot of my... Theology was corrected. It was where I, I really understood the value of being part of a church, not just attending a church. And it was actually through being mentored by Pastor Day uh, week after week that that eventually came out, um, not only mentoring me and helping me grow spiritually, but uh, him suggesting and, and prodding and trying to find gifts and ways to use those gifts. And um, by God's grace, to his glory, I was used in this church and in churches since. Um, in fact, the, the first Sunday school that he, he referenced there, I, I remember I burned through all of my notes and my material in the first 10 minutes, and I was panicked because <laughs> I was like, I, I need to talk for another 40 minutes, and I don't know what to do. Um, so, yes, yeah, that and um, tell you, there's nothing on this earth more, uh, more awkward than, than preaching a, a sermon to an empty room save for your pastor who's criticizing everything you say, trying to, to help you to get better. It's a good experience, but... <laughs> it was awkward is what it was. <laughs> so uh, the message is going to be from First Peter, but I'd like to open up with uh, a different scripture to get us primed. If everybody could turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll see if... Uh, there we go. We got a clicker. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 to 9. And to give you some really quick context, uh, Paul is comparing Christians, the Christians he's writing to, with... The, the type of people they used to be before they were saved with the rest of the world. So 
let's follow along. Let's read this and pay attention to the, the theme of God's grace because we're going to be talking a lot about that in First Peter. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing me back to this church. I thank you that you have preserved this church. I pray that you would continue to do so, that it would be rooted in your word. I thank you for your grace. I I humbly ask that you would use me as a, a conduit for your word, that we might have our understanding of grace broadened a little bit, our capacity to see how great your grace is broadened just a little bit more. Um, I pray that you would you would be glorified this morning. And I thank you for your word and for the encouragement and, and reproof it gives us. Amen. So go ahead and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is where we're going to be planted for a little while yet. Actually, we're going to read from 1 Peter 5 first, but we'll get there. Um, grace. What is grace? We're going to have to talk about this a little bit more, but I want you to start challenging some of the, the notions that you might have. What, what word associations do you have with grace? What image comes to mind? You know, I say the word grace, you think what? A, a cloud that you can rest in, some, some secure comfort, a gift that you didn't deserve, some, some extravagant thing on Christmas morning. Those images are good, they have their place, but Peter, in this particular letter, has a, a different picture in mind. Uh, so when I read First Peter and I, I see him use the word grace, I see like an immovable fortress or an unbreakable soldier, a strong foundation, something to stand firmly in. And he calls Christians not so much to rest and relax in the grace of God, but to, to stand firmly in it. So we're going to be looking at the first big thing is the grace of God. Right? What, what is the grace of God? And turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is good because I really, I really want to ground everybody into this idea of grace. Because Peter gives us the reason why he wrote this letter. Not, not all the authors do that. Not all of them are, are so explicit so as to say, this is why I wrote you. Peter does that for us. It makes my job a lot easier when trying to explain what Peter's motive was in writing. So chapter 5, verse 12, he writes, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of, grace of God. Stand fast in it. So everything in First Peter, it kind of stems from this doctrine of grace. Right? Because of grace, we can do this or that. So all of the practical application, it flows from the grace of God. And, and first we need to dive into, well, what does Peter define God's grace as? What is it? When I say grace to you, what does that even mean? What, what do you do with that? So let's get a, a bigger understanding of what God's grace is, is, is defined by Peter in chapter 1. So flip back a page. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. 
And this, this is the introduction. This is Peter you know, introducing himself, writing to the people he's writing to. But it's really dense with theology. It's, it's a wonderful passage. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So the first thing we should see right off the bat is is grace is a work of all three persons of the Trinity. So, So we need to get out of the mindset that grace is the thing you experienced that one time when you said the sinner's prayer. Grace is big. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but but let me point out verse 2, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God the Father has a, a unique, a specific role in making sure that you are the recipient of his grace. If you're saved, it is because you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We'll define what some of those things mean in a minute, but already you see that God the Father specifically is working to intervene in the life of the Christian to make them a Christian so that they would receive the grace of God. Same sentence, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is the second person of the Trinity mentioned here. The Holy Spirit works a sanctifying work in your life such that you can be chosen by God, such that that choosing is effective. So you did not wake up, I'm willing to bet, one day and and suddenly realize, gee, I was chosen by God the Father, I must be a Christian today. That's not how it works, right? That's that's been nobody's experience here, I'm, I'm willing to bet. The Holy Spirit first does this work, regeneration, to change your heart. This is a necessary work. Okay, In Ephesians chapter 2, that we read before the, the sermon really got going, we see that we were the objects of God's wrath. Right? Justice, the fair thing for God to do, would be to mete out his punishment against sin. Right? We were, by nature, rebellious. That's the fact. Every single Christian here deserved the wrath and punishment of God. That was your will. That was the core of your being. So we need to dismiss this notion that people are morally neutral creatures that can choose righteousness or choose sin because you're born not in a state of neutrality. You're born in a state of of sin, of hostility towards God. The very core of your being is hostile to God which is why the Holy Spirit needs to come in and, and to change that heart. That the very fundamental nature and will of yours needs to be dealt with. So this is why the Holy Spirit does this work. God the Father chooses according to his foreknowledge, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, such that you now have the capacity, the ability to love or desire God. The ability to love and desire God is not something innate within you. That's something done by the Holy Spirit. And then the rest of this portion, the rest of this thought, continuing on, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. There we have Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working together to demonstrate 
grace to every Christian. Sprinkled by his blood, we're talking about salvation, the atonement of your sin, and then ongoing obedience to Jesus Christ. All three persons of the Trinity working so that you can experience God's grace. And beyond that, grace is eternal. In these same verses, look back up to verse 2. So this is where we're going to dive into this idea just a little bit more. Verse 2, the beginning of this thought, right? Who have been chosen? So you Christians who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. These are past tense words. What is uh, Peter saying? Okay, He's saying that God chose us to be the recipients of his grace, to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ according to his foreknowledge. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this than, than in some of the other aspects of the eternality of God's grace. But it's, it's important to note that when God says he chose people according to his foreknowledge, these phrases are not ever used in this context to mean that God looked ahead into the future and said, gee, one day some guy named Mark Flake's going to be born. He's going to have enough faith, so I guess I'm obligated to choose him to be a recipient of my grace. God is not obligated to choose us. What is being said here? Well, God knew me, or he knew you before, previous. Okay, so we're talking past tense stuff here. What does it mean that God knows? Look back to the Old Testament. We're not actually turning there, but hopefully you've heard this phrase, you know, God knew Israel, or he's talking to Israel and he's saying, "I, I know you. What does that mean? Does God know the population statistics of Israel. He knows what Israel is going to do in the future, but he doesn't know what's going on with those other nations. Well, sure, he knows the population statistics of Israel. He knows what Israel is going to do. But when we say that God knows Israel, something more is going on as well. He has a special, an intimate, personal relationship with that group of people different than any other nation on the face of the earth. He knows Israel, just like how he knows Israel. You, as a Christian, this, this body of believers, churches, he knows his people. That means he has a special, intimate, personal relationship. And Peter is saying that God foreknew Christians. In other words, he as an eternal being who has existed outside of time forever, determined to know Christians, those who he would call as his own, before they were even born. In fact, Paul goes even further back in time. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We read Ephesians 2. We're going to look at Ephesians 1. Because Paul, I think, makes this extremely clear, very explicit. Clears up any doubt. Makes it very clear cut for us. So Ephesians chapter 1, looking in verse 3. We're going to see that grace is eternal, extending into eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Okay, note that we are not chosen because God is obligated to choose those whom he just happens to know in advance are going to respond in faith. Right? Your, your faith is important. It's a necessary part of salvation. It's not the fundamental root cause. God is. 
God the Father is the fundamental root cause of why you are sitting here today as a Christian. He chose us exclusively because of his pleasure and will. So we have the role of God the Father working from eternity past. And then if you look at the rest back in 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll see that grace goes even further into eternity future. Look at verses 4 and 5. We see this eternal inheritance. So we're kind of jumping into the middle of a sentence here. He's talking about the Christians who have been brought into an eternal inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you who are through faith shielded by God's power until the coming of a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We're talking about grace extending into eternity future. This goes on forever. So we're talking the second coming where Christ will bring back his judgment and justice, the reckoning and the glory of a new creation. And we spend eternity in the presence of Christ. And this is a horrifying thought. If you think about what it would mean to spend eternity in the presence of Christ, if you have not been sanctified, if you've not been made holy, it's an incredible thought to think that you can stand in the presence of an infinitely pure, holy perfect being without a trace of shame or fear of being exposed and and laid bare. We're not going to go through the Old Testament, but if you go through the Old Testament, maybe Isaiah's encounter with God in chapter 6, being in the presence of God himself is, is not a pleasant experience if you have any trace of sin with you. This is why this inheritance is so glorious, because we get to spend an eternity with Christ, an inheritance that never spoils, perishes, or fades, but we experience God face-to-face in rapturous joy, not in fear, not in, not in cowering at his holiness, but in joy because he has made us fit to be with him forever. So we have grace and eternity past extending into eternity future. I'm hoping that Your idea of grace is getting bigger as we read through what Peter is saying. Grace is also present. Grace was not something given to you the moment you said the sinner's prayer, and that's it. Grace is ongoing. It's, It's actually being demonstrated to you right now at this moment, in every moment that you live. Look again at verse 5. He's talking about the Christians who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation. In other words, you are being shielded now so that you can be assured you will receive that inheritance in the future. The word shielded is actually a very, very cool word. It comes from the Greek phureho. Okay? The definition of this word is to protect by military guard, either to prevent a hostile invasion from attacking or to keep the inhabitants of a besieged city from escaping. It's a a two-pronged protection. It prevents people from getting in that are not supposed to get in. It prevents people from getting out that are not supposed to get out. And it's enforced by a military might, or is in Peter's case, by the very power of God himself. Do you see what this means for you and for your salvation? Peter's saying that you, if you're saved, you are under arrest in a good way such that God himself and his power is going to make it so that you cannot be removed from nor flee from your inheritance. It is a settled fact. And this shielding is ongoing. It never stops. There's There's no skipping of a beat. God has 
determined from eternity past that you would be a recipient of his grace. You are now preserved such that you are guaranteed to be the recipient of that grace for eternity future. Grace is eternal, accomplished by all three persons of the Trinity. Now, if you don't know these things to be true, if you don't, if you don't have a personal knowledge and experience of God's grace, if you're not saved, eternity is too long of a time to gamble. So I would encourage you, talk to me, talk to pastor, talk to one of the elders or any of the spiritually mature people here because this is important. God's grace is not something to be taken lightly. This, this is eternal life or death. And, and just because I talked about how God and his work as the Father um, makes the choice, that, that doesn't mean that evangelism goes out the window. Christ specifically commanded us to evangelize, to preach the gospel. That's reason enough to do it. If you feel an inclination to seek out God, right, if you're not saved at this moment, and I'm talking to you who are not saved, if you feel an inclination to learn more about this, to, to better understand what God's grace is, that's a good sign. That, that, that's a good indicator that maybe the Holy Spirit is, is working in you such that maybe you're going to be receptive to the gospel. Okay? It takes a work of the Spirit. It, it's God that has to change the heart. But he uses his word. He uses the preaching of the gospel so that those two points can connect, right? your heart and his grace. Now, for the rest of you who, who are saved, I'm extremely glad. Okay, That's good. But the rest of the sermon is then for you because we still haven't addressed the question, how do you stand firm in the grace of God? Right? That's, that's kind of the whole letter of Peter. Peter says, I wrote this so you would understand the grace of God. Stand firm in it. How do you do it, Peter? Well, Peter spends a lot of the time in his book explaining just that. We're going to look at just one passage. Okay, So now we've, we're moving on from theology, understanding God's grace. We've seen just a little snippet of it. Peter elaborates on grace even further throughout the letter. But now we're going to jump into application. How do you live this out? So I encourage a study of First Peter. It's, it's a very worthy book of your close attention because he does get very practical. This is the grace of God. This is what you should do. This is the grace of God. This is what you should do. He flips back between theology and, and practical application all throughout the letter. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 4 and 7. So just this little itty-bitty snippet. There's a lot of really good practical stuff here, but, but study the letter. There, there is a lot of really great stuff here. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to read verses 7 to 11, chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves... They should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So the first thing we see in verse 7, right off the bat, live with a sense of urgency. It's what he says, the end of all things is near. This is probably something you would see written on a cardboard sign being held by a lunatic on the street corner, right? But... Peter's making a good reminder. The end of all things is near. In other words, 
Christ coming back to bring that global reckoning, to bring eternal justice, to bring the glory of a new creation, could happen at any second. Could have happened at any second when he was writing this. It could happen at any second now. He's not saying that it's going to happen this afternoon. The point he's making is you don't know when it's going to happen, but it could happen this afternoon. So just because Christ hasn't come back in the past couple thousand years, he may not come back for a couple thousand more. We need to live as if he was coming back this afternoon, imminently. It needs to be reflected in how we live. And specifically, it's for prayer. So look again at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Right? So that's the fact. The end of all things is happening. Therefore, so in light of that fact, be alert and of sober mind. Be clear-minded so that you may pray. He's talking about corporate prayer. Okay, so this is very, very, very important. When you're reading First Peter, and he's, he's giving a direct command, or maybe if you see the word you, he, he's not talking to you, the individual Christian. He's addressing churches. In fact, he addresses a number of churches along this frontier area of the Roman Empire. He, he's addressing a body of believers. These are corporate commands. This is not a command to a Christian who is an island. He is addressing Christians who are part of a body. Corporate prayer. Corporate prayer such that it is clear-minded, sober, thoughtful, diligent, consistent. So in light of the, the second coming, you know, some people, TV preachers in particular, get whipped up into a sort of frenzy. Um, they didn't read this verse because he's saying specifically to be clear-minded, sober, thoughtful, diligent. That, that's the type of corporate prayer that should be reflected because you know the end of all things is near. In other words, pray as if God is coming back this afternoon. Don't, don't pray as if you're a teenager who knows that his parents isn't coming until tomorrow and he's got plenty of time to figure things out before then. Pray. Live your life in a way that reflects a clear, diligent, focused sense of urgency. The next verse, love deeply. So these are, these are the ways that you stand firm in the grace of God. Okay? This, these aren't divorced from what we're talking about. God's grace is more than just saving grace in your life. Right? It is saving grace. That's important. But standing firm in the grace of God means to be diligent in your corporate prayer. It means to love deeply. Love covers a multitude of sins, Peter says here. So loving deeply does mean love from the bottom of your heart, right? To, to love sincerely. That, that's good. We should do that. It carries this other meaning as well of over the long haul, to love over the long stretches of time, to love consistently. It carries a longevity as well as a depth. In loving each other in a way that covers a multitude of sins, Pretty straightforward. I don't, I don't think I have to explain what this means. You know, somebody sins against you, you're able to forgive them. Somebody in this church offends the church, you're able to restore them back. And I think as Christians, we're pretty good about forgiving people the big sins, right? Because we know that'd be bad if we didn't. But, but dare I say, I, I think Peter, while he does mean that, forgive the big sins, the things that, that really hurt the church, and you're willing to restore this person back, I think we should also go the extra step and be willing to overlook minor offenses and annoyances. 
and things that people do that bother us. I mean, could, can you imagine people leaving churches over music selection and this person who sits in my seat on Sunday morning? And it happens. We're, we're able to forgive the big things, but, but loving deeply, consistently means loving the people in this building over the long haul, overlooking sins and offenses. Standing firm in the grace of God means hospitality, joyful hospitality even. So I, I get that we have an abundance of hotels and Airbnbs, right? That wasn't the case in the first century because if you were traveling as a Christian in the first century, you were pretty much at the mercy of hospitality. This was really difficult if the Christians were hated by the culture. Spoiler alert, they were. So you were dependent upon Christian hospitality. This is important. This doesn't let us off the hook just because we have hotels and Airbnbs, though. Um, hospitality towards each other in this church, in this community, could look like the Dinner for Eight groups. I was part of those back when, when I attended here. Do we still do those? Yes. I'm glad to hear that. Because that really stretched me, you know, when it was like, oh, my goodness, it's that time of the month. You know, th- it was an obligated, it really, it really, I, I did not read this verse, right? Hospitality without grumbling. I grumbled. I did it out of obligation. But it, it changed my perspective on what it means to be part of a church, to be hospitable. And in fact, about a year ago, me and, and the other spiritual leadership of the church, we were talking, how do we get people in this church to know each other better? How do we get people to be more connected with each other? And I said, you know, we did this thing at my church in Rochester, and now we have dinner for eight groups, and it makes a difference. It's incredible to get to know people beyond the handshake on Sunday morning, to, to be invested in each other's lives. That's hospitality, opening up your doors to each other, where you see somebody coming into the church you don't recognize and say, let's, let's go to Bill Gray's after church, being willing to, to open your doors, to be invested in the lives of each other. That's, that's hospitality. That's standing firm in the grace of God is what it is. And now we have the big one, spiritual gifts. I'm going to reread verse 10. Each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Each one of you should use whatever gift you have received. This this is... A difficult one to hear because no no church is, is perfect at it, to be quite frank. Peter's not giving us a list of spiritual gifts. Paul sometimes does that. They're never comprehensive, but Peter basically divides up all spiritual gifts into two categories. Right? He's saying, all of you, everybody here has a gift. Whatever it is, use it to serve others in your church. And then he divides up these two gifts into to two categories. We have speaking and pretty much everything else. Speaking and serving. So in verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. That's one category, speaking, teaching, preaching, that type of stuff. And then the rest of the verse, if anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides. That's like everything else that's not speaking. This is a catch-all. So service is going to fit in one of these two categories. And Peter is saying that you as a Christian are a steward or an administrator, a manager of God's Grace. We talked about grace as not something you can earn or merit. I should probably even define the difference between mercy and grace. 
Mercy is the withholding of a punishment you deserve. You get a bunch of death row inmates. They committed the crime. They've been convicted. They deserve to die. And then mercy would be the intervention of the governor to pardon that person. They're not going to die. They're not receiving the penalty that they deserve. That's mercy. Grace goes even further and says, okay, you are not coming into my house. So they invite the death row inmate who has been pardoned into the house of the governor. He provides him a place to stay, gives him the resources to get back on his feet, to be a productive member of society, gives him everything that he needs. That's grace. It is unmerited favor or giving something to somebody that did not deserve it or earn it. You're a steward or an administrator of God's grace. So your gift, whatever whatever thing or things you're good at, that's a demonstration of God's grace to you. Remember, grace is more than saving grace. It's gifts. Right? The things that you are gifted and like to do and are good at doing, it's because of God that you like to do them and you're good at them. What are you using it for? It's not something that is innate within you and that you have the right to keep to yourself. It is something God entrusted to you, and you now are the administrator of something that doesn't belong to you, God's grace, your gifts that he gave you. Here's the gentle rebuke. If you are going to this church, if you're a member and you've committed to this church and you are not serving in any way, you are not being a faithful administrator of God's grace to your brothers and sisters in this church. And and this is hard to hear. I get that. It's harder to hear when I preach this sermon at my my home church in the village of Moravia because there's like 30 people there. So it's really hard to hide in anonymity. You know, a little bit bigger church like this, it's easy to say some other guy will take care of that. Be a faithful administrator of God's grace. So how should you use your spiritual gifts? What are your spiritual gifts? How do you find out what your spiritual gifts are? Uh, Might I humbly suggest that while online spiritual gift surveys and questionnaires have their place and they may be helpful, um, I tend to think that they're mostly garbage. Uh, Reason being is because they're not comprehensive. You cannot fit the totality of how God has gifted every single person in this room in five or six boxes on a questionnaire, right? There are more gifts than what we typically think of. So might might I suggest a better approach to ask yourself is, what am I good at? What do I like to do? Don't don't think about churchy stuff. Don't think about singing and preaching in Sunday school and VBS. Think about, out of all the things in my life I like to do and I'm good at, what are they? Once you've identified that thing, find a way to make it useful in the church. Find a way to serve other people in this church with that thing. You know, do you like to throw parties and entertain? Do you like to teach people new things? Do you like to talk? Do you like to act? Do you like sports, cooking, um, talking, writing, praying? These are all things that can be used in the church to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, let me give you an off-the-wall example. Okay, This is one way that I, I serve my church back home. Um, I, I have the gift of tabletop gaming. Does anybody here know what a D20 is or... Settlers of Catan. There we go. You guys are my people. <laughs> so there, there's one particular game that, that I, I like more than any others. It's called uh, Redemption. It is a, a card game, kind of like Magic the Gathering. You build your deck. You play against somebody else that builds their deck. Except these cards are different in that every single card is taken directly from Scripture. So the way that I've been able to take this, I'm, I'm fairly decent at the game. Um, I've been able to take this and start a play group in our church. 
So now on a regular basis, we're gathering together. We're discipling each other. We're able to explore the nooks and crannies of Scripture because these cards have to get their inspiration from somewhere, so they dig into the corners of Scripture even. I also have a platform, a captive audience to give the gospel to people. You know, I've got this time of a short devotional. We've got people coming from outside our church who just love games, and now they're there, and I get to expose them to Scripture. I'm able to serve my church through a game. So for those of you who are, who are fellow tabletop gaming nerds, um, come talk to me after the service, and, and maybe we can figure something out. Maybe I can visit more than once every five years, and we can get something going. <laughs> so are you using your God-given gifts to serve the people in this church? Um, if not, find it. You're, you're missing out. I'm not saying you're going to hell if you don't do this. What I'm saying, though, is that you are missing out on something that God has graciously given to you. It is a joy to serve your church. It's not a burden or an obligation. Now, if you are serving the church, praise God. That's awesome. Uh, let me just caution you to serve with the right heart, because even, even I've struggled with these things before. Serving in the church, like I said, I come from a small church. We've got like 30 people, give or take, on a Sunday. And I serve in multiple capacities in their front-facing capacities. It's really easy for me to serve out of the, the sense of, I'm the guy, right? Don't serve with that motivation, not out of status or pride. And don't serve out of obligation either. I see people sometimes that will serve and say, well, nobody else will do it, so I guess I'll be the one to do it. It doesn't glorify God. We were told specifically to serve so that God in all things might be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Serve so that God is glorified and then your fellow brothers and sisters benefit from it. And when you serve, know that God provides his strength to use your gifts. This is not up to you. You don't need to worry that that. The grace you received when you were saved is all the grace you're going to get for the rest of your life because Peter says that when you serve, you should do so with the strength God provides. It's ongoing. He gives you the strength you need. Even when you burn up through all of your Sunday school material in the first 10 minutes, he gives you the strength you need to serve. So in closing, let's go back and revisit the main themes here. Peter spends his entire letter expanding the Christian's understanding of grace. It's accomplished by all three persons of the Trinity. Grace is eternal, extending from eternity past, before the creation of the very world. Grace is present, preserving, shielding you at this moment, enabling you to serve even, and then extending into eternity future. Grace is so much bigger than we tend to give it credit for. And because we've received grace, we stand firm in it. Standing firm in the grace of God means to pray corporately, to live with a sense of urgency, to love each other deeply, overlook offenses, to open up our doors to each other in hospitality, using your gifts faithfully to serve the brothers and sisters in this church. Standing firm in the grace of God means doing all this for his glory and through his power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace. It is, it is beyond what I can even comprehend. 
And I thank you for opening up my eyes a little bit more to how awesome and gracious you are. I pray that this church would continue to be preserved. It would be faithful administrators of your grace. It would demonstrate grace to each other, um, more than just on Sunday mornings even, on on an ongoing basis. And I pray all these things ultimately for your glory and your praise. Amen.